Good morning. Welcome to Church of the Incarnation. So great to be worshiping with you. If you are new to our church, maybe you've only been here for, I don't know, three, four, five weeks, you might not know me. My name is John Ziegler, and I have the privilege of being the pastor here at Church of the Incarnation. I also had the privilege of being away, of having vacation, a good long extended time of rest and restoration that I greatly needed. And I'm so happy to be back. Uh, I see some folks looking at me like, okay, is he rested? And is, is he like dread, like, you know, you go on vacation, you're dread being back to work. I just want to let you know, friends, it's not like that. I actually like you guys a lot. I have missed you incredibly. I've visited some other terrific churches. But let me just say, I'm super happy to be back worshiping with our church uh, this morning. God is doing something special here, and I am super thankful that I get to be a part of it. So happy to be back. I just want to say thank you to you guys that have just done a tremendous work of worshiping the Lord and praising him and including people and all the work that the, the church does that you guys have been doing while I've been away. And um, thankful for you and, of course, all the leaders that help to sustain this work. Also want to celebrate, we had a really amazing kids camp this week. Um, we had a bunch of kids here. Some of them were kids from our own church. Some of them were kids from the neighborhood that we were connected to through uh, a ministry that we support. And uh, Caroline Brooks, together with Aaron and Gypsy, did an amazing job of just putting on a really fun. Yes, you can clap for them. It was just a great picture of like really what we want to be as a church. Just a space that invites and includes a, a place where people are pointed towards Jesus and a place where people are just having fun while they do it. And um, I'm super just thankful and encouraged to, um, to have seen it and that, that we got a chance to do that. So thank you for all your hard work. We appreciate you. Many of us would probably recall these famous lines from Shakespeare's play, As You Like It. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They all have their exits and entrances, and one man has in his time, I'm sorry, I'm messing up the lines of our, the bard here, one man in his time plays many parts. If your life were a play, what would be the name of it? Or we could ask on a bigger question, if human history were a play in which you were merely an actor, what do you think that play would be about? We could ask it another way. What simply are the stories that have come to define your life? Almost from the time that we are able to understand language, we are being told stories. And we use these stories to make sense of our lives and to make sense of the world that we live in, right, and how it works. Think about it. You've been told stories about your family. Maybe you were told stories about things that happened when you were little that you forgot about. Yesterday, we put together this 
Murphy bed uh, in our kids' room. It is a Murphy bed that we've had with us now several moves. And it was in our house in Los Angeles, but our youngest kids don't even remember it, even though they were jumping on their grandparents in this bed for like several times, hours, right? And so you have to tell them stories that kind of help them piece together their life. Had trouble getting my son to eat a breakfast taco yesterday. And I had to tell him a story about how he is from Los Angeles <laughs> and how people from Los Angeles eat tacos, okay? Tortillas is a way of life for you, my son. So there's a story for that, right? It helps shape the way you live. And we're told stories about history, right? I think about some people in our country love stories about the American Revolution, stories about World War II, right? And these kind of stories have a way of funding a certain way of being in our country. And then I have other friends that want to recall stories about things like slavery and genocide and Jim Crow and civil rights. And these stories are important as well, right? And they have a way of funding an imagination of what is happening in our world. The news tells us stories. Our friends tell us stories. Every book we read, no matter what the book is about, is telling us a story. And perhaps the most important story for you are the stories that you are always recalling to yourself. The stories you're always telling yourself about yourself. And these stories work together to define your worldview. Your sense of reality and your part within it. And this morning, friends, I want us to review a story. It's actually the big story of Genesis. It starts in Genesis 12, but really it's the story of the entire Bible. It's a story of promise. It's a story about God's plan to save one family and from that family to save the entire world. It begins with the 12 in Genesis, I'm mean, sorry, it begins with a promise in Genesis 12 where God picks this one man named Abraham that is living in present-day Iraq, and we get no story about why God chooses this person. It's not that he's good. It's not that he's special. It's not that he's done something that's deserving of God's call. God simply calls him. And he gives him a promise. He says, I want you to come out from where you are into this land that I'm going to give you. And God tells him that he's going to make him into a great nation. In other words, he's going to have many descendants. And he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great. And through you, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And it turns out that the God who creates both land and life in Genesis 1, the last time I was here preaching, is now making a promise of both land and life to Abraham. Your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky, and I'm going to give you a land. The only thing is, if you're familiar with the story, there's always obstacles in the way of the promise. And so it feels like the promise is really fragile. 
Because in almost every chapter of the book, there's something that seems to be putting the, the blessing in jeopardy. And if you're familiar with the story, maybe you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you'll know what I'm talking about. For instance, the promise involves offspring. But over and over again, families in this family have trouble having kids. Where are the offspring going to come from? The promise involves land. It turns out that Abraham is in a land where he's got lots of money, but no one is very interested in selling him land. It's a land that's already full of people. People already own the land. There's so many obstacles. And what's revealed in this story is that a God who over and over again makes a way for his people where there seems to be no way. He's a God who gives life where life is humanly impossible. And this story, my friends, is of utmost importance to you if you call yourself a Christian, because this indeed is your story, and this God is your God too. Galatians 3.26 says this, For in Jesus Christ you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then verse 29 and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So if you've been baptized into Christ, then you belong to Abraham's family through faith. And this big story of promise we're talking about today then becomes your story as well. And all of this reminds me of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> like some of you, I did click on the Netflix documentary, <laughs> which um, documents Arnold Schwarzenegger's life. And I know for some of us, he's kind of a funny figure. I know for me, he is, right? The governator. Um, but really, he has a fascinating life. I mean, this guy was born in this small village in Austria that no one's ever heard of. And then he ended up becoming not only Mr. Universe, but ended up becoming one of the most uh, famous actors of his time. And then after that, he ended up becoming the governor of the largest state in America, which, by the way, has like the fifth largest economy in the entire world. It's kind of like a big deal for someone from such, uh, you know, small beginnings. His life is pretty fascinating. And if you watch the documentary, you'll note that when he was a boy in the 60s, he went into a theater to watch an American-made film about Hercules. And people are laughing because they've seen it, but there's this guy, Reg Park, that's playing Hercules, and he is just like this bodybuilder. That's who you would expect playing Hercules. And Arnold gets it into his head as a kid. I'm going to be the next Reg Park. I'm going to win Mr. Universe, and I'm going to move to America. I'm going to become famous. I'm going to be a Hollywood star. 
And this begins to become a story for Arnold that defines his whole entire life. And so he just begins living in the world as if it's true. And so he starts working out like three hours a day because this is his future. And you know what? He actually did it. He went on to become Mr. Universe, right? And then he moves to America, and then he keeps entering into every bodybuilding uh, competition you can imagine, and he wins them all. And then after several years of winning them all, he says, okay, I'm bored with this. I'm ready to move on to the next thing. I'm going to be a big Hollywood star. Only problem is Hollywood wasn't looking for a big old muscle head of a star in the 70s. Like, that wasn't the thing, right? It was like beatnik hippies, right? Skinny guys like me were probably on film, right? They weren't looking for these big old buff guys. And the other problem is Hollywood wasn't looking for someone with a really strong Austrian accent <laughs> to star in their films. It turns out that's just not something Hollywood just tends to be looking for. And so it didn't go very well for Arnold. His phone wasn't ringing. But he had it in his head that this is the story in which he is living in. And he woke up every day in that story. And so he didn't stop. He just kept trying and trying to become a better actor, trying to speak better English, all the stuff you might imagine. Took some more acting classes because he was really bad. If you saw his first film, um, first couple of films, you would know how much he improved. But what happened? He just kept living in that story. And at some point, he went on to become like the big name in action films in the 80s and the 90s. And if you lived through the 80s and the 90s, you know action films were a big deal, right? Before Marvel came along, they made movies about other things besides comic books. And Arnold was right in the middle of that. Now, I'm telling the story about Arnold not because he's some moral example, okay? I don't want anyone here to go out and be like Arnold. I'm also not trying to just encourage you to try harder, all right? Because that's not the gospel. But what I am trying to point out to you is how you are already like Arnold. The stories we tell ourselves are the stories that come to define our lives. And the little and big choices that we make are based on this story in which we understand ourselves to be living in. And so my question for you this morning, the big question that I hope you will wrestle with is what is the story that you have been telling yourself? Friends, if you have been baptized in Christ, into his life and death and resurrection, then you have been baptized into his family. And so you belong to this big story this big story of promise. And this is a story that you wake up in every day. When your alarm clock goes off, you're already in that story. And this is a story that I want you just to keep reminding yourself of. And if you know the story that we're talking about, the story that begins with Abraham, then you can expect all kinds of challenges. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be sin and there's going to be moral failures. You're going to be in impossible situations where you can't imagine how God is going to see you through. And yet because you know the story, you're going to know that our God is a God that keeps 
his promise. That God is faithful to do what he said he would do. That through Jesus Christ, all of God's promises are coming true. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, friends, everything is going to work out in the end. Now, I know you, like me, often would love to know what the practical application of a sermon is going to be. And the practical application of this sermon is to simply do the work of believing the gospel. Because if you believe the gospel, all the practical little everyday stuff will work itself up out. If you believe the story is your story, it's literally going to affect every practical decision you make. And it's probably even going to result in you making some decisions that are quite unpractical, at least according to the world or according to your family. I wanted to begin this morning by zooming out on the big picture of Genesis and indeed the entire Bible, this story about a God who chooses one family to save and to bless the entire world. Because it's the necessary framework for every sermon you're going to hear me preach in this book. Now that we have that framework set up, I want to spend the last few moments here zoomed in to the story that we read this morning. In the opening verses of our passage in Genesis 25, we learn that the promise is in jeopardy once again. We've got Isaac, right? Abraham's miracle son. The son that Isaac, I'm sorry, the, the son that Abraham and Sarah thought they could never have because they couldn't have, have kids. And now he's married to Rebecca, the providential wife, the one that was handpicked by God for Isaac, right? It's like God's wonder couple. Everything is going to be great now in the story, right? Now that they've found each other, they're married, everything's going to be good. Only it isn't. Because the promise is in jeopardy once again. Because the story tells us that Rebecca is barren. Like many of us, they are having fertility issues. They're unable to bear a son. Most families can just produce offspring. It seems to be a natural thing that just happens. But not in this family. Abraham and Sarah have no way of producing children. Their bodies are completely incapable. But it is only through the power of God that Isaac was produced. And Isaac knows this. And so Isaac does the only thing that he can do. And that is he prays. He prays to the God that gives life in impossible situations. And that God hears the prayer of Isaac. And Rebecca conceives. And it turns out that just like many of our fertility treatments, God's life-giving power is so strong that it produces not one son in the womb, but two. And so Rebecca goes from not being able to have kids to having two in her womb at a time. Now, there's no ultrasound available. 
And so Rebecca doesn't know what's going on in there. And in many ways, almost, yeah, it's easy for us men to forget just how dangerous childbearing can be. But there are many women who have lost their lives in childbearing. It's a dangerous thing that our women bear on our behalf. Of course, things have gotten better with modern medicine, but Rebecca is living in a time before modern medicine. And so she is greatly concerned about what she is feeling inside of her. And so she does the only thing she knows to do. She prays and she inquires of Yahweh, the God of Abraham. And this is what Yahweh says to her. There are two nations in your womb and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. We get this omen of conflict. Instead of like all parents would wish, two brothers born that will live in harmony and love each other and bring the family together, instead there's going to be division. And so we learn that the promise made to Abraham is going to be passed down through Isaac, but not through the oldest son as we would expect, but instead it's going to go to the youngest. The elder shall serve the younger. Esau came out first, red and hairy. Afterward, his brother Jacob came out, grasping at his heel. This was Jacob from day one. This is what he does, grasping at his brother's heel, holding him back from being everything that he should be, tripping him up, causing him to stumble so that Jacob can pass him up. And so the story of Jacob is going to be defined not only by gift, the gift, but also by conflict. Some of us were thinking that when God called us and when we got saved or when we became a Christian or when we got baptized, suddenly God had chosen us and so everything's going to just go right for us, right? God's going to kind of iron everything out and now our life's going to be super smooth. It turns out this story of Jacob reminds us that it's often the very call of God that creates conflict in our lives. It's actually this very blessing that causes Jacob to have conflict. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus means when he says things like, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Doesn't mean that he's raising up people that are violent. It only means that as people began to follow him as their Messiah, as people began to live in the countercultural ways of his kingdom, that it's going to create conflict within families. Jesus promises persecution for his followers. He invites us to take up our crosses. And I don't know about you, but I personally find this as a huge source of encouragement. <laughs> It means that conflict in my life doesn't mean that God isn't blessing me. According to Bible, the path of blessing 
is also a path marked by conflict. Well, why so much conflict? Well, it's because God chooses the wrong man. Of course, God doesn't actually make a mistake. He just chooses the wrong person from our human perspective. Many of us will know that in ancient Near Eastern cultures, the eldest son was a really big deal. And the lion's share of a father's property was going to go to the eldest son. And this was the custom not only in Israel, but in all the nations surrounding Israel. And this helped with a lot of things. One thing is it kept the farm together. You can think about it. You've got a farm. If you divide it up too small, uh, no longer can you compete in the economy, right? So if you make sure that the eldest son has the lion's share of it, he can kind of work with the rest of the brothers to kind of keep the farm together so that there is cooperation. Having these strict rules around who inherits what and how it works also helps to prevent fighting and the kind of conflict that we're going to read about in this story in the weeks to come. It helps prevent families from fighting each other and bloodshed. And the Bible knows about this rule. In fact, in the Torah, we read that that the oldest son receives the double portion. And so how that works is I'm one of four. You can imagine if you divide my, what my father leaves into five, the oldest son would then receive two parts of that, right? And then the remaining three parts will be divided between us. And so there's going to be conflict because God is going to choose the younger Esau was beloved by his father. He was a skillful hunter. And he hunts and he brings home wild game. Now, this is everything every father here ever wanted, right? It's my dream that I would come home from work and say, hey, Martin, what's for dinner, you know? Like, and that's just going to be the greatest day of my life, right? They're providing the food. I mean, think about what you would do with all the money you're spending right now on groceries, right? Like where eggs have gone at Kroger, right, friends? What are you going to do? It's amazing. Jacob, on the other hand, did not hunt. The text says he was a quiet man who lived in tents. He's an inside boy. I'm not sure exactly what the text means. I think it means maybe that Jacob was a gamer. All the gamers here in the front row are looking up suddenly. Maybe he was in the chess club. I don't know. It seems like he didn't want to get his hands dirty, and he preferred to stay inside in the A.C. I can identify it. In Atlanta, I just want to be inside. Just like in the month of July, let me be inside with Jacob. It probably seemed to everyone that Esau was the better choice, that he was the stronger one, that he would be the one best equipped to lead the family. And that it's through someone like that that this promise should pass. The promise already seems so fragile, right? Don't we need it to pass through the stronger one? And friends, this is a good chance for us to reflect on a key element in this story. The big story of promise that we call the gospel. St. Paul in his first letter to the church at Corinth put it this way. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
He chose what is low and despised in the world. Things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are. So that no one may boast in the presence of God. It's important for you to know and understand this. That God did not choose Jacob because he was stronger or smarter or any of the things that we look for in a hero. This is what God is doing in the world, friends. He's choosing the low and the despised and the poor and the weak and those on the margins. And he's precisely choosing them to display his great and wonderful power of salvation that is at work to remind us that his power is not human power and he is not relying on us, but we are dependent on him. Think about Jesus, born to the peasant Mary in an unimportant corner of the Roman Empire. Think about Jesus, naked and poor and powerless and hanging on a cross. There you see the power of God's salvation at work. God subverting the powers of this world by raising up the weak to accomplish his purposes. It's not because Jacob was stronger or smarter. And two, it's not because Jacob was a good person. It turns out that God chose Jacob before he was born, before he had done anything good or bad. And Paul talks about this in Romans 9, 11. He says, even before Esau and Jacob had been born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works, but by God's call. Rebecca was told, the elder shall serve the younger. And then he quotes Genesis, as it is written. Oh, there's another part. I have, uh, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Sorry. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For God says to Moses, this is what he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so it depends not on human will or exertion, that is, not by our good works, but on God who shows mercy. Friends, as we're going to see in this story, Jacob is not an especially moral person. He's a liar. He is a deceiver. He's not the kind of man I would want for a son. He's certainly not the kind of man that I would want for a neighbor. He's a trickster. He's the kind of guy that will pull one over on you. Whatever you do, don't get into a business deal with him, okay? You might think the contract looks good, but he's going to find out a way to come ahead. It seems like he's the kind of guy that's always coming out ahead at your own expense. And so if God doesn't choose Jacob because of his strength or because of his superior moral character, why does he choose Jacob? And this is a key gospel principle that I hope to see in this story specifically. It's a doctrine we could call the doctrine of free election. 
It's that God freely chooses people to himself, not because of anything that they have done. Like, he's not forced to choose them. It's not like their moral character or their strength obligates him to choose them. He just freely chooses them because he chooses them. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. To put it another way, God loves Jacob just because. Just because he does. Just because he decided to love him. And that feels super arbitrary. But friends, once you begin to realize that God has chosen you and he loves you just because, it's going to totally change the way you live in the world. Because you're going to realize that you can't perform to make him love you anymore. Because it's not because you were doing good stuff that he decided to choose you. It's not because you were the smartest or the brightest that he decided that you should be in his family. God loves you because he chose to love you. It's his choice. Nothing you're going to do is going to obligate him to love you more. He's completely free. He's the freest being there ever was. And he just freely loves you. I'm here, friends, this morning simply to remind you of the gospel. And that is that God chose one family to save. And through that family to save the entire human family. So how do you get to be a part of this family that God is saving. Well, as I said, I'm going to repeat it again. You can't earn your way into the family. Good works aren't going to qualify you for the family. Intelligence, education won't qualify you for the family. Your money and even your generosity will not buy you into this family. You can only belong to this family because of what God has done for you on the cross. Through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, God has made a way for you to belong to the family that he is saving. And God's word assures us that when we put our faith in Jesus and are baptized into his death and resurrection, that we are indeed living members of his family. So how do we respond well, one, we're going to respond by coming to this table and partaking in the family meal that reminds us that even though we are sinful and we are flawed and we are weak, we are also loved and forgiven and accepted and welcomed into his family. And then from there, we're going to be sent out and we're going to remember this story of promise and we're going to keep it with us in our hearts and in our minds. And when you wake up in the morning, I want to invite you just to live into this promise as if it were true, as if God really did give everything for you and that if he loves you just simply because. And just like Shakespeare says, the whole world's a play and we're just actors, I want to encourage you to go out and be an actor in this play, in this play of promise, knowing that you are loved, knowing that you could be confident in the one that is going to keep his promise to you. Amen.